The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. All right, you can take a seat. We had a saying in seminary, if you can't preach good, dress good. So it's good to be with you all this morning. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord God, we come this morning confessing so often we forget the resurrection. So often we minimize the resurrection. We forget what an impact it can and should and does have in our lives, God. Today, I pray that you would guard our hearts, that you would overwhelm our hearts with the glory of the truth that you not only came and died, but that you also rose again because you love us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Frank Morrison was an English freelance writer who lived from 1881 to 1950. And he set out to write a paper entitled, Jesus, the Last Phase. And the purpose of this paper was to disprove the resurrection. Frank believed that if he could disprove the resurrection, that he could disprove Christianity. That if the resurrection was not true, that Christianity wouldn't be true. That the resurrection was the linchpin on which Christianity rose or fell. What do you think? Would you agree with that statement from Frank, who was set out to disprove the resurrection? Is the resurrection really that important? Must it be historically true for Christianity to be true? Well, let me tell you what the Apostle Paul says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Frank Morrison was completely accurate on this point, that if he or anybody else could disprove the resurrection, not only is Jesus dead, but so is Christianity. The resurrection is central to Christianity. If it is not true, if the resurrection did not happen, not only is our preaching in vain, but your faith is absolutely worthless. And what you do going to church on Sunday mornings, reading the Bible, praying, sharing the good news of Christ is absolutely worthless. And so the question we have is, did the resurrection really happen? We're going to look and see as the Apostle Paul today charges us to believe in the resurrection. And not only to believe in the resurrection, but to hope in the resurrection And then also to live in the resurrection. Let's start by looking at his charge for us to believe in the resurrection. Often in our historical arrogance, we believe that we have reached the climax of intelligence and wisdom. That people of biblical times were uneducated, that they were gullible people. But the people in Corinth did not believe 
in the resurrection. At least not all of them did. Many of the people in the church at Corinth did not believe the resurrection was true. And that's why Paul writes this letter to them. That's why he writes 1 Corinthians 15 to them. Look with me in verse 3, if you would. It's in your bulletin. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. Not only were those in Corinth skeptical about the resurrection, but in fact, the disciples were skeptical as well. I don't know if you remember in the passage earlier, we read how, how Jesus appeared to Mary and to the other Mary, and how they came back and they shared with the disciples, we have seen the Lord, he has risen. And then it goes on to say that the disciples saw it as an idle tale. They did not believe that Jesus indeed had risen from the dead. And then Jesus appeared among them and said, Touch and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. On that night of the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, all of them were there except for Judas, of course, and Thomas. And so the disciples went to Thomas, and they told him, We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. And do you remember Thomas's epic response to that? Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, I will never, I will never believe. I mean, here you have your ten best friends, all of them together saying, We have seen the Lord. He has risen. And his response is, I will never believe unless I see it and touch him for myself. This man is not gullible. This man is a skeptic. And Jesus comes with overwhelming proof of the resurrection. We read that eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And so Thomas had visible proof that Christ had risen from the dead. And then Jesus said to him, peace be with you. Jesus gave audible proof that he was alive. It wasn't just a hallucination. And then Jesus gave physical proof to Thomas. He said, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. You know, Thomas got the bad rap, didn't he? We use the phrase doubting Thomas. Don't be a doubting Thomas. But to be honest, all of the disciples doubted. None of them believed until something amazing happened. Until they saw Jesus with their eyes. Until they heard Jesus with their ears. Until they touched Jesus with their hands. There was visible, audible, and physical proof that was undeniable. Christ had risen from the dead. Now, you might say, You know, maybe this was just the disciples wanting to carry on this elaborate myth. And so the 12 of them got together and and concealed this plan together. But Paul continues in verse 6. Read along with me in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Then he, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James... Then to the apostles, 
Least of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. Jesus did not just appear to the 12 disciples, the 12 followers. Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers. Whether this includes women or children, we don't know. But at least 500 people saw and heard and touched the resurrected Lord. And so Paul says, do not take my word for it. Go and talk to the 500 people who have seen him raised from the dead. This letter to the Corinthians is written about 16 to 18 years after the resurrection of Christ. And I know that may seem like a long time ago, but this would have been easy to recall for them. Just to put it in perspective, 17 years ago, one of the historical events was Princess Diana died. Do any of you remember how she died? How did she die? Car accident, right? Where was she? Do you remember? In a tunnel, right? I still remember the images of the emergency lights in the tunnel and them filming it. That was 17 years ago. Across the other side of the world, and really, to be honest, did not have much of an impact on my life. Such such an event as a resurrection would have infinitely more impact and would have been infinitely more rememberable than that tragic accident of Princess Diana. For each and every one of those 500 witnesses, the resurrection of Christ would have not just been a news story. It would have been the most significant event in their entire life life. And so Paul says, do not take my word for it. Go and talk to the 500 brothers. Yes, you may be skeptical, but go talk to those 500 brothers. Even non-Christians testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, there was a historian named Josephus who was a his, who, who, who did not become a Christian, never was a Christian. And yet in AD 93, about 60 years after the resurrection, he writes this, He says, when Pilate, upon the accusations of the first men amongst us, condemned Jesus to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him. For he appeared to them on the third day, living again as the divine prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. This comes from Josephus, a man who never proclaimed Christ as his Savior, but the visible proof. The audible proof, the physical proof was so overwhelming that he states it as historically true. If you doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is time to doubt your doubts. We can have confidence that Jesus is alive, not because we have seen and heard and touched Jesus for ourselves, but because we know of other skeptics like the disciples, like Thomas, like the 500, who for themselves saw him and touched him and heard him. The evidence is there, and so Paul exhorts us to believe in the resurrection. Paul also exhorts us not only to believe in it, but also to hope in the resurrection. You know, the resurrection wasn't merely to have an intellectual understanding of it, but the empty grave was a symbol of our greatest hope. You know, many times when I ask the people in membership class or whatever it might be, and and I'm at fault of this, but I will ask people, what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? And they will say, Jesus has died for my sins. Is that good good news? Indeed it is. Is that the gospel? It's incomplete. Look in verse 17 with me. 
Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, he doesn't say, if Christ has not been crucified. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The reality is, is there is no good news without the resurrection. In our community group this week, we asked the question, why is Good Friday called good? I mean, the Son of God is betrayed. He is wrongfully accused and sentenced to death. He is beaten within a lash of death. He is paraded up a hill and hung up publicly so he could be humiliated and everyone could laugh and mock him. And then the God himself, his heavenly father, turned his back as the shame of your sin and my sin came out upon him and he died an excruciating death and then he was buried. What makes Good Friday good? It was a horrible day. What makes Good Friday good is Sunday. Good Friday is not good unless the resurrection happens. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, his death is absolutely useless, and our hope is absolutely hopeless. But Christ did raise from the dead. And because Christ raised from the dead, we have a certain hope in this life and in the life to come. We see here, Paul tells us of two hopes. First, the hope here, the first certain hope is that since Christ has raised from the dead, we are not in our sins. Verse 17, again, look with me. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So let me put it in a positive statement. If Christ has been raised, your faith is not futile, and you are not still in your sins. To, be still, to still be in your sins means that you are defined by your sin. All of us were born sinners. To still be in our sins means that we will be treated according to our sins. That we will be enslaved to our sins. That we will endure the consequences of our sins for all eternity. But if Jesus raised from the dead, which he did, and you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, you are no longer in your sins. Do you hear that? You are no longer in your sins. What are you in? Who are you in? You are in Christ. Not because of the crucifixion alone, but because of the resurrection. You are no longer defined by your sin. You are defined by Christ's righteousness. You are no longer identified as a sinner by God, but as a saint, as a holy one. You are no longer enemies of God, but you are his friend. You are no longer an orphan, but you are a child of God, but only if the resurrection is true. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we are not in our sins. Secondly, because Christ is raised from the dead, we will not perish. This is a future hope that Paul promises to us. Verse 17 again, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. 
every person that I know of, has asked a question in their life, what happens when I die? And there are many romantic views that are put out there about reincarnation of different shapes and different forms. But if I want to know what happens when I die, I do not want to know the opinions of man. I want to know what God says. And what God says in his word is there are two options of what will happen with you when you die. The first is that you die in your sin and you perish in hell for all eternity. But because of the resurrection, there is a second option, that you die in Christ, and in the twinkling of an eye, your soul goes to be with Jesus as we await the second resurrection when Christ returns and our bodies are raised gloriously and perfectly. It's not in your bulletins, but later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the resurrected body. He says, what is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If Christ was raised from the dead and you trust in Christ, because you are united to Christ, you have this great and glorious promise that you too are raised and will be raised from the dead. Through his resurrection, Jesus has put to death, death for us. Verse 25, again, it's not in your bulletins, but it says this, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous Bible teacher in the 1950s. Tragically, in his 30s, which hits home for me because Trish and I are in our 30s, In his 30s, his wife passed away, and they had young children. And as he was driving his children to the funeral, his daughter asked a very poignant question. She asked the question, Daddy, if Jesus died for our sins, why do we still die? What a great question, isn't it? At that moment, a large truck roared past them. And Barnhouse turned to his daughter and said, Tell me, sweetheart, would you rather be run over by that truck or by its shadow? And she responded, By the shadow, because it can't hurt you. And her daddy responded, Did you know that the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus in order that only its shadow might run over us? Your mother has not been overrun by death, but by the shadow of death, that is nothing to fear. We are told this good news by Jesus himself. He says, I am the resurrection. Not I will raise, but I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Jesus took on the fullness of death, the blunt of death, the horror of death, the awfulness of death, that we might only experience the shadow of death, because though we may die, In Christ, we shall live. If you're here today and you do not know what will happen when you die, if you're paralyzed by fear over your death, hope in the resurrection. Hope in the Christ of the resurrection, that you are no longer in your sins, but that you are in Christ. Hope in the resurrection, and you will not perish in hell for all eternity, but you will be victorious over death, and you will live with Christ for all eternity. Hope in the resurrection. Finally, 
Not only should we believe in the resurrection and hope in the resurrection, but we should also live in the resurrection. Let me ask you this question. Are you shaped by the resurrection? Is your heart shaped by the resurrection? Are your motivations shaped by the resurrection? Is your calendar book, your finances, your longings, your desires, your dreams, are they shaped by the resurrection? Our understanding of our future, although we don't know it, our understanding of the future and the future resurrection has a dramatic effect on how we live our life today. This past week, I was watching reruns of TV show The Office. Has anyone here not seen The Office, just out of curiosity? All right, there's a few. So most of you will get this. There's an episode in which Michael Scott promises some third graders in sort of this underprivileged school um, where there isn't a good graduation rate. He promises them that if they graduate high school, he will pay for their college tuition, okay? Any of you seen this episode? Okay. So in this episode, it it fast-forwards 10 years, and they're getting ready to graduate, and the seniors are excited, and so they invite Michael Scott for the 17th time to come and celebrate this joyous occasion, their, their, their graduation in which they're going to go on to college, and he is going to pay for that college tuition. And he shows up, and they're wearing these t-shirts that say, Scott's Tots, right? And he walks into the room, and they applaud for him. And then they have this song and this dance. This boy gets up and gives his testimony. He says, you know, so many times I was tempted to follow the drug game. But I didn't because I remembered my guardian angel, Michael Scott. And by this time, he's crying, right? So I pressed through. I endured because I remembered that future hope that I had. Later on, they find out that the graduation rate in this class far exceeds any other class because all of them had this future hope. See, all of these high school students had to go through the frustration and the monotony and and, and the disappointment that comes with the teenage years and with high school. But this group was able to press through like any other group because of a future hope. Now, if you have ever seen The Office, you probably know Michael Scott did not have the money to pay the debt for their college tuition. And so the question is, how do we know that Christ will pay for our sin? How do we know that we indeed will raise from the dead? And the answer is, is because he rose again. Jesus rose from the dead because the debt was paid in full. And because of that future hope, that should manifest itself in our life today. What is evident throughout the scriptures and Christian experience is that the truth of Christ's past resurrection and the hope of our future resurrection radically transforms our life in this world today. We see this in the Apostle Paul. If you know the story of the Apostle Paul, we we are first introduced to him. He does not love Jesus. As a matter of fact, he hates Jesus and he hates Christians. He's an entrepreneur. He decides, I want to throw Christians into prison. And he approves of the death of Christians. And then in verse 9, read along with me. We read this from that apostle, Paul. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, and here we see the power of the resurrection, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, 
and so you believed. What happened? Paul went from a persecutor of Christ to a preacher of Christ. He went from a persecutor of the church to the pastor of the church. What happened that causes transformation in Paul? It was the same thing that happened to the disciples. Do you remember the disciples' story? Before Easter, Peter denied Christ three times and fled Jerusalem. Before Easter, Jesus' own brothers denied that he was indeed the Son of God. And they fled when he was arrested in the garden. Before that Easter Sunday, the disciples huddled in a room together out of fear that they too would be persecuted and killed. But after Easter, they were radically changed. This might be yet the greatest proof of the resurrection. That after Easter, after the resurrection of Christ, unbelievers became believers. Cowards became courageous. And the timid became outspoken. What happens with the resurrection is it radically transforms those who believe. You see throughout the book of Acts, there's this repetition in which after Christ's resurrection and appearance to them and the sending of the Holy Spirit, they boldly go out and proclaim the resurrection. And then they are arrested, they are beaten, and then they are warned, do not preach of the resurrection any longer. And then they go back out and they preach the resurrection and they are arrested and they are beaten, and then they are warned, do not preach of the resurrection again. And this continues for every one of them until they are either put to death for proclaiming the resurrection or outcast. And so we see the, the resurrection of Christ drastically transforms those who believe. If you want to celebrate Easter today, proclaim the resurrection boldly, knowing with confidence that Christ has raised from the dead. Let me end with this. You remember Frank Morrison, who we talked about at the beginning, the freelance journalist who set out to write a paper, Jesus, the last phase to disprove the resurrection, knowing that the resurrection was a linchpin of Christianity, that if you pulled that out, if that disintegrated, Christianity was dead. Well, his paper became a book entitled, Who Moved the stone. It was printed first in 1944 and then reprinted in 55, 58, 62, 77, 81, 87, 1996, and 2006. It was a wildly popular book. But when he set out to write the paper to disprove and undermine the resurrection, he ended up writing a book that defended the historicity of the resurrection. Frank Morrison set out to disprove the resurrection. But as Frank studied the evidence, Frank found out that the resurrection disproved him. Frank's life was dramatically transformed by the resurrection. Frank encountered the Savior for himself through his Holy Spirit. Frank believed in the resurrection. He hoped in the resurrection. And he lived in the resurrection, telling all that he could about it. Frank experienced the resurrection when he was born again. September 14, 1950, when Frank was hit by the shadow of death, he experienced the resurrection again as he passed from this life to the next to be with Jesus. And now Frank Morrison awaits the final resurrection of his body in which his soul and body will be reunited in the new heavens and new earth to live and dwell and enjoy Christ for all eternity. 
the first Easter, the first Easter Sunday was a celebration of Christ's resurrection. My hope and my prayer is that this Easter Sunday would be your resurrection. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have given us overwhelming confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord God, I pray that as we go through the day today, as we go into our houses, as we go back through our weeks, as we dive into these things at Community Group, God, that we would see all of the implications of the resurrection, that without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. Let us live in light, in the glory, in the joy of that resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.